So um, I've, I've handed out an article to you guys by Donald Whitney. We're not going to go over it exhaustively. I'll, I'll probably refer to it towards the back end of the message this morning. But here comes New Year's, and here comes, you know, longings for resolutions and changes, and, and all that's good. You know, I don't know what the heck a date has to do with it, like New Year's, but it makes sense psychologically, 220, 219, where it's big, huge change. But, um, but Donald Whitney is a, one of my, f- well, he's my favorite writer about spiritual disciplines. He's a, he has a huge passion for spiritual disciplines are things like prayer, the word of God, study, fasting, meditation, worship together, giving. And um, he's, he's one of these guys who's helped really crystallize the idea that spiritual disciplines um, are, they're, they're a means of incredible grace and that living without spiritual disciplines in the Christian life is, is living an anemic starvation diet. And so um, he's, he's helpful in helping me understand that you know, spiritual disciplines aren't something that I do to earn God's favor. There's something I do to experience the favor I have in him. You know, just like when you lift a sail, you don't make the wind blow, but you catch the wind, right? And I always like that analogy with spiritual disciplines. It's, it's lifting of this sail. The wind's blowing, the spirit's here, he wants to bless us, but we've got to lift the sail so that we can catch his wind and move forward. And spiritual disciplines are essential to catching the wind of the spirit and walking with him. And that's basic meat and potatoes Christianity of Bible study, prayer, meditation, worship together. And so uh, serving, giving, anyway, this is gonna be on that same kind of theme of, of how can you leverage your time and your focus to make more of the joy in the, of the Lord that, that he wants you to experience. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a second, but I just wanna let you guys know what that is. Um, little quick post-announcement, p- poinsettias <laughs> are out there. If any of you guys want poinsettias, we have a few left over from, from Christmas Eve. Um, so. So please grab some of those if you want before, <coughs> before they get old. Um, man, what a joy Christmas Eve was here with El Shaddai. I don't know how many of you guys, I see some of you guys were here. Um, that was just incredible blessing. Um, and so it's, it's um, yeah, it's good to be together. We got a lot of people sick today. The Schulenbergers are all sick. Is Amanda here? She's here. Are her boys sick? Are they here? Okay. Jim and Lois are sick. Um, I know some other folks are sick. So let's pray before we do anything else and we'll pray for the word of God to move in our hearts. We'll also pray for the health of those families that are not with us this morning. Lord God, uh, thank you, God, for your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue. Lord, as we've prayed, um, I, I just pray again, Lord. Soften our hearts to help us to see you through your word. Proclaim this morning. Help me, Lord God, to preach with honor, honoring your word to preach with uh, discernment. Uh, Forgive me, Lord, for, um, Lord, my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins, as David prays. Let them not rule over me, Lord. I I just pray for grace to be able to bless your people and nourish them through your holy scriptures today. Lord, we would see Jesus. I pray you'd make him alive to us in your word. We pray for the Schulenbergers. We pray for the Hogs. We pray for other folks this morning who are sick and ill. And we pray your spirit would help them to recover Lord, 
those who are healthy in this room know the joy of being healthy, and we've all been sick, and we know what a burden it is to be sick, Lord. We pray for Yvonne as she grieves her father. Help us to be mindful of her and remember her. We pray again for John and Deb as they seek to minister to Marilyn. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last Sunday, we, we, we finished up that message going through this catalog of Old Testament prophecies that had come together for us over about three weeks of searching the scriptures, recognizing all that the Old Testament, well, <laughs> I should say all, so much of what the Old Testament had taught us concerning the Messiah, we saw in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman and destroy Satan and his work. We have slides for this, Brando, I think, right? We saw that he would descend from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David, as God narrowed down more and more and more and more again the, the genetic tree. If you turn the tree upside down, it, it just siphoned off more and more branches to come through uh, a narrow and narrow path. We saw that the, the Messiah would be a savior to Israel, but also a peace to the entire world. He would be a light to the Gentiles. We saw that David's Lord in Psalm 110, that David, the Messiah would be David's Lord sent by Yahweh and also an eternal priest. We saw in Isaiah 9 that he would be a child given to us a son born to us, but he'd also be mighty God over us. We saw in Micah 5 that he'd be born in Bethlehem. We saw in Daniel 9 that he would appear as Messiah, as Gabriel told Daniel, 483 years after Jerusalem's rebuilding is decreed, that he would come to his people as their king. At that time, we saw from, uh, I believe it's Zephaniah 9, that he would come riding on a donkey, a symbol of gentleness and humility. We saw that uh, he would be rejected by his own people and condemned to death. Isaiah 53, kind of the ground zero of messianic prophecy, tells us that in his death he would be scourged. His hands and feet would be pierced. Uh, Psalm 22 attests to that as well. His limbs would be stretched to the breaking point. His, he would be mocked and his clothes divided by lot. It's again Psalm 22. Uh, Isaiah tells us he would be assigned a criminal's grave but be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53 tells us that this would all be part of God's plan. It would be God's will to crush him, causing him to suffer. That he would die in the place of those who reject him. That he would justify his people from all their sins. He would be their atoning sacrifice. Isaiah goes on to tell us that after his death, he would see the light of life. He would live again. And that he would be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentile nations from Isaiah 42. Coming back to Daniel 9, we learn that after his death, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed again. Remember that Gabriel made this prophecy before the temple and the city were even built again. Gabriel tells Daniel they're going to be destroyed again after the Messiah is cut off. We saw all this without a word from the New Testament. This all came from the Jewish prophets of the Old Testament. This all came to the Jewish nation as it was in the Old Testament. This all came centuries, five centuries, before Jesus took his first breath on earth. Just around that. The last word from any Old Testament prophecy, prophet that we hear from for, for centuries before Jesus is born come around 430 BC. They're from the prophet Malachi. 
It's the last book in the Old Testament. And there Malachi says, through the Lord, the Lord says through Malachi rather, behold I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Behold I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Yahweh says, he's going to prepare my way before me. He's coming, right? And even in this language, we, we hear these, these hints of a Trinitarian God. I am coming, you will see him. The Lord promises that this messenger, that, that, that he will come in such a way that it, it will be, he, he tells us it will be a day of endurance. He says, who can endure his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Then God says, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress, who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's the close of the entire Old Testament, the book of Malachi. I'm coming, and when I come, who will endure my coming? And to prepare my way, I'll send a messenger before I come, but I'm coming. And then the book closes. Between these last predictions and the appearance of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem as Messiah, we're nearing 500 years. During that time, only silence. No prophets are recorded. That would be like for us, the last thing that we heard from the Lord through a prophet, go back to 1550. Go back to maybe 15. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, really a long time ago. I, I, I just say that to give you guys like a, a sense, a benchmark of saying, okay, we're talking about 16. Oh, two, you know, if we're Israel, that's the last time we've heard from a prophet. Now we're coming on the year 2020. It's a long time of darkness and silence. And then suddenly, John the Baptist comes. And he says, he's the messenger. I'm the one sent ahead of the Lord to prepare his way for him. The Lord's coming. John says, one is coming whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie. He's one who comes after me but he's greater than me because he's before me. John makes no apologies for saying that the, the one who's coming, he says, is greater than all. That he, he existed before John. That he's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And then in the book of Luke, we finally see Jesus coming to John, being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending on him, fulfilling part of what Isaiah 42 says. The Holy Spirit descends on him, and the Lord himself, Yahweh, declares in that moment, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. 500 years of silence. And there he is, coming out of the water. Here I am. 
Jesus is led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. He's tempted in private by the devil. And then he comes back to Galilee and begins ministering. And finally, in Luke's gospel, we meet him in this dramatic moment in the synagogue. And this is our base passage for today from Luke 4. So try to, try to think about this for a moment. You were in church on Sunday. There's this 30-year-old man or so who, who you've grown up with. You know his family. You know, Dave and Becky. <laughs> you, you might have even been in youth group with him. He's always been dutiful. He's always been focused. He's always been kind. He's always been respectful. He works in his father's trade. Say he's a car mechanic. Humble guy, kind person. And then he comes up in the middle of the sermon to do a reading. <laughs> it's Christmas time. Maybe he's going to come up and do, you know, I don't know. Well, but he gets up here and he stands before you like I'm standing before you now. And let's say we're a liturgical church, so you got an Old Testament reading, New Testament reading, whatever. But he comes up to do a reading. And you're looking at, you're looking at Mark, <laughs> the Mark got, kid you grew up with, car mechanic. And that's where we find ourselves kind of today. So let's, let's now try to get back into the Bible. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and read. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. What would you do with that? I mean, the closest thing you could kind of come to in my mind is someone getting up and reading about the two witnesses in the book of Revelation who are gonna come and miraculously prophesy in Jerusalem and someone getting up and say, reading that verse and then saying, Behold, pay attention. I am one of the two witnesses who will prophesy in Jerusalem. Well, you can imagine it, it caused quite a stir, and it did. Now, I've read these words many times, this passage, and maybe you have too. But I, I wanted to preach on this today because I wanted you to consider in light of all that we have seen for the last three weeks. And so if hopefully, you know, you've been here for some of those messages. If you haven't, you might be a little bit of a disadvantage, but the Holy Spirit is here and he can make up for that. But I wanted you to consider this moment in history 
even though, you know, as we said this morning in band preparation, this message is about Jesus being the Messiah. You know, it, it's, not, it's not new news to us, but I, I want it to be new news to you. New in the way that it's renewing. It's refreshing your heart. I wanted you to think about the hundreds and thousands of years of God's people speaking about this person and people waiting for this person for hundreds and thousands of years and then finally one day this person coming and saying, I am him. Here I am. In a little room like this. Because I want you to see as I need to see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or you've been a Christian for two days or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, when you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, in the way the Bible wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you are being changed in that moment. When it's not just a fact that's dull to you, but when you can spiritually see it with your eyes and spiritually really behold him, you are being changed by that. That is the Holy Spirit moving and renewing you and transforming you. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of preaching to you about something that I can't get to you. You know, that, that's kind of this frustrating task of, of a preacher or anyone who's sharing the Lord with another person. Is, is you have the words, you can say the words, but you can't transfer the truth to the person. It has to be something that happens inside their own soul. But it happens through words. That's why God gives us his word. That's why his word is so important to look at and behold again and again and again, as Donald Whitney tells us. Because as I've processed this in preparation, I'm so gripped by this again. Not as much as I want to be, and that's part of being gripped by it. You know you need to be gripped by it more. But this is really the Messiah. <laughs> and, and you know what's, what's, what's helpful to me in, in my own new journey in the last few days coming to grips with this is seeing Jesus say this after looking at these prophecies of hundreds and thousands of years, seeing Jesus say this, I'm really the Messiah. It, it, it's like the solar system <laughs> has been really shaky in my life. You know, the planets feel out of alignment. Earth seems like it's going over here. Venus seems like it's going over here. Saturn seems like it's just kind of in its own corner somewhere. And then the sun just jumps in and centers itself in my solar system and all the planets just start to align themselves in the right way. That's what happens in my soul when I hear again, Jesus is the Messiah. He really is my savior. It starts to change my appetites. It starts to affect my sobriety, my mental sobriety. I don't mean my, my drug addictions, though that's what it would affect too if I had one. It, my appetites get recalibrated it is what I am made for, and it is what you are made for, to know that Jesus is the Messiah and to know this every moment. 
And so Jesus comes and he says again and again and again in so many ways, I am the Messiah. See, he doesn't, he doesn't just hint around to being the potential fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy in the Old Testament record about the Messiah. I might be him. I might. He's not skirting around it. His, his assertions, yes, there's, there's like a dynamic to his assertions about being the Messiah. They get louder as his ministry progresses because he knows that the more he says it and the louder he says it, the more people he says it to, the closer he's gonna get to being crucified. And he wants to be crucified at a certain time in a certain way. So he's in control of the disclosure of his Messiah. He has a purpose and a timing to the volume and the reach of this disclosure. But, but even from the start, Jesus, if you're paying attention to Jesus, he is giving respect and deference and highlighting these long prophetic voices we've been studying for three weeks. These voices that have been crying out to Israel for centuries. And he's been saying, it's me. It's me. <coughs> you might recall the visit with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus is seeking to draw her to faith and repentance. She is a Gentile for all intents and purposes. She doesn't know Israel as she should. She doesn't know the Bible as she should. Jesus lets her know that he wants to give life to her. He lets her know that he knows her whole life story. He's never met her before. He knows about her failed marriages. She deflects quickly to a religious argument about her culture and his culture. And then she says, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just as simple as that. I am the Messiah. Deeper in his ministry in Matthew 16, he said to them, his disciples, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the whole center of this Bible we have. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray you might reveal this to my brothers and sisters and to my heart afresh this morning. In Luke 7, 20, John the Baptist is suffering in prison. He's wondering where this Messiah that was going to bring freedom and liberty is. He's rotting in a cell under Herod's tyranny. And the Christ is supposed to bring freedom. And he sends to Jesus and he asks through his disciples, Are you who he was to come? I thought you were the one. I saw the Holy Spirit fall on you, but here I am languishing in prison. And my life isn't changing. Should we look for another are there two messiahs? Is there a suffering messiah and a conquering messiah maybe? Did we get it wrong? And Jesus answers John by saying to John's disciples, pulling from the Old Testament prophecies, some of which we've been looking at for weeks, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And perhaps this is a warning to John and his expectations for the God that he decided maybe God was supposed to be for him. Jesus says, blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Who doesn't stumble that I'm not coming in the way that you expect. 
But he says to John, John, I am fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah. So who do you think I am? In John 8, Jesus takes the claims of Messiahship to a place that's really doubtful that anyone was prepared for him to go, including his disciples. When he proclaims in an argument with the Pharisees that Abraham prophesied about Jesus coming and that Abraham received the promise of Jesus coming when Abraham received the promise that through his seed, through Abraham's descendant, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Jesus says this to the Pharisees. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's not a bigger mic drop in the universe than that. And of course, in the climax of his proclamation, the confession that would seal his fate, at least for a weekend, it would seal his crucifixion and thus seal the forgiveness of everyone who puts their hope in him. Jesus is standing before Caiaphas and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, which is basically the courtroom, the supreme court of, of Israel at that time. I'm going to read a bigger portion that's on your screen, then I'll pick it up. I'll pick up the screen with you guys. And they led Jesus to the high priest. This is the, the morning of Good Friday. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him in a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself with the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony, they did not agree. So there's this clamoring back and forth and accusing and reaccusing and confusion. And the Pharisee can see, the, the high priest can see, the, all the Sadducees can see that, that this, already this mock of a trial is going nowhere fast. And so the high priest, who is pretty cunning, he decides, I'm going to cut to the quick. And he knows what question to ask. And he says, forget all this stuff, all this testimony. I'm going straight for the bullseye here. Starting in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. What's amazing is if you think about Daniel's prophecy, which Jesus is alluding here to, which we'll get to in a second, (laughs) there was no way for anyone to claim to be the Messiah without being executed by these men. To be the Messiah was to fulfill Daniel's prophecy that Jesus is alluding to here, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus told Caiaphas in the most direct way he could that he was not only the Messiah, but he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah in the sixth chapter I'm sorry, I think it's, it's Daniel 7. In the seventh chapter of Daniel's book, Daniel has a prophecy of the final conquest of God over all the nations and all the futility of the world. And Daniel says this, in my vision at night, I looked, and I believe, do we have this, Brando? In my vision at night, the one after the one you just had. What's the slide next? Pardon? Okay. In my vision at night, this is Daniel from Daniel 9, or Daniel 7. This is about the year, maybe somewhere in the high 500s, 580. I don't know for sure. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Daniel sees a human. He doesn't see God simply. He sees a man, a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, and that's Yahweh, and and was led into his presence. And he, the son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And this was the prophecy that Jesus took upon himself before Caiaphas saying, I'm that one. I'm the one who one day you will see, not in chains, covered with blood, beaten and spat on, but you'll see in glory on the clouds of heaven and you will see the entire earth bowing down to worship me. And they went mad with anger and jealousy and bloodlust. So I don't have an ingenious appeal this morning. My my main appeal this morning to you and to myself is simply this. Affirm Jesus as he affirmed himself. Here's a New Year's resolution for you and for me. Each day when you wake up, let the first conversation maybe between you and the Lord be this. Are you the Christ? the son of the living God, and hear him say to you, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let him say to you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? I know what other people say. Who do you say? And say with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God.
affirm with your mind and your heart every day as perhaps the very first act of your day that you will confess with your mind and your heart and you will seek with your day in your life that day that to affirm with everything you are that Jesus is who he says, that God has done what he promised he would do for centuries and thousands of years, that he has fulfilled his promise about the coming one, and that he has brought Jesus Christ to you and presented him to you to be each day your Lord and your Savior. That each day you will, in in whatever way you choose, in whatever way is meaningful to you, you will say yes to him, When he says, am I your Messiah? Am I your Lord and your King? You will say, yes, Lord. And when he says, take up your cross and follow me then, you will say, yes, Lord. I will do this. By your grace alone, I will do this. Because apart from you, I can do nothing. But with you, I can do all things because you strengthen me. That each day and whatever day is, whatever way is meaningful to you, I'm not trying to dictate what your quiet time should look like, but that you won't waste your days this year. But each day you will say, I'm going to take my yoke upon you because you're the Messiah. You're the one coming on the clouds of heaven. You're the one who has proved who you are to me through thousands and hundreds of years of prophecies, fulfilling them precisely and perfectly. And you will say to him, I want your yoke of leadership over my life because I want to taste your easy yoke and your light burden because I need rest for my soul. So I'll, I'll watch out for your leadership today over my life, Lord. You are my Messiah. That's what I want in 2020. I want to do a much better job of that than I did in 2019. I'll go back to an old dead horse <laughs> a few blocks away down the street. If you go to our, our, our homepage, there's a little, um, there's these th- three blocks Pam has set up. One's like uh, 10 ways, we can talk about that maybe in, in a couple of weeks. Then there's sermons, and then there's um, daily devotional. Um, it's a long prayer I wrote for our church. I've talked to you guys about it before. But it, it's my attempt to put into biblical words this daily consecration, this daily, Lord, I will live for you, but this daily dependence, Lord, I can only live for you by you. <laughs> because it's a package deal. He is to be your Lord, but he is to be your Savior. He is to be your King, but he must be your rescuer. You can't give him anything except what he gives to you. But when you say, Lord, I want to follow you today, truly, he goes to work in you to give you the power. Paul says it this way, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, Be serious about this. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be half aid. Don't, don't negotiate with him. I'll do this, but I won't do this. But give him your life that day. And then, then Paul promises, it is, for, it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purposes. Wrestle with him. God, have your own way in me. Augustine, St. Augustine in the 300-something, uh, he, he, he put it this way, a way that I love so much. His cry, one of his famous cries out to God was, Lord, command whatever you will, but give me what you command. Do you see that? Be my king, command what you will, but be my rescuer. Give me the power to do whatever you command. 
But it starts, it starts with where we are today, though. It starts with you and I affirming this is the Messiah, with you and I seating him on the throne of our, with, with you and I acknowledging just that simple truth, you are the Christ. Folks, God honors that affirmation. You can't see Jesus with your eyes and touch him with your hands like, like they could then. But that's the same Jesus who, who knows exactly what you're saying and what you're thinking. And when you come to him and you say each day, you are the Messiah, you are the coming one, Jesus responds to that, just like he responded in the scriptures whenever anybody acknowledged him and his power. He responds to that, faith. One final point I want to make is something profound from the Lord in this passage. If we go back to Luke 4 and that scene, you know, in the church when Jesus opens the scroll and reads that prophecy I talked about, I used the guy Mark and the, working on the cars, that scene. Jesus does something in that passage that is really easy to miss if you don't know the prophecy he's quoting. But if we go back to Isaiah 61, <clears throat> Isaiah says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus essentially reads Isaiah 61 here. There's, there's some differences and it might be a different translation or a different commentary they had in that scroll because there's some other pieces of Isaiah that's intertwined with this Isaiah. But essentially he's reading Isaiah 61. But when he gets to the end of Isaiah 61 verse 2, he, he does this. He, he says, look at verse two. To pro- Jesus says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. He doesn't go on to the next line. He doesn't finish the verse. He stops at the year of the Lord's favor. This year of the Lord's favor, it's a reference for the Jewish people. They probably would have recognized this as a reference to what was called the Jubilee year. The Jubilee year. <clears throat> Leviticus 25 explains that the Jubilee year was a year commanded every 49 years. And this, this is going to sound very Daniel 9-esque if you were here for that. But basically in Leviticus 29, God says, after seven sevens, after seven Sabbaths, that's 49 years, all the people were had a year of freedom. The 50th year was to be a year of freedom after 49 years. And starting on the Day of Atonement on Passover, Wait, no, I'm getting that wrong. Yom Kippur, (laughs) please forgive me. Passover, Yom Kippur are different holidays. Starting on Yom Kippur, which was a couple of months ago, there was to be a ram's whore blown on that 50th year. That was to mark the beginning of that year. And on that Jubilee year, listen to this, this is crazy. (laughs) Everyone who was a slave, an indentured servant, was to be freed. Done. Everyone who had property of their families bought from them and they no longer had that property, their property had to be returned to them. In Israel, you couldn't own another family's property. You couldn't own another family's land. See, God had given the land out and apportioned it to the tribes just as he wanted to. And he said, every 50 years, this land has to go back to the families I first gave it to when you first came out of Egypt. Every 50 years, everything goes back. Now, if, you, if you're a... If you're a, a, a um, if you're a, a descendant of, of Judah and you, you build a house on the land that belongs to a descendant of Ephraim, you get to keep the house, <laughs> but you don't get to keep the front yard. 
the land goes back to Ephraim and his family. It, it, it was an amazing idea. And, and if you were a Jew bought by a foreigner to be a slave for them, and I don't want to get too far into this, but, but when you think of slavery in that time, don't think, or in the Greco-Roman system, don't think of slavery in the 1860s. I'm not a scholarly historian. Everything I understand about slavery is it had a much wider range than, than as horrible as it was in the 1860s and 1760s for African Americans in this country. We're, we're treated much, much worse than, than the Jews would treat each other in their indentured servitude. But, but you were property for somebody else and, and you were free. And if a foreigner had bought you as, a, as an Israelite, that foreigner, they could not keep you on the Jubilee year either. You were commanded not to, you had to go back. You had to be free. So the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor is the year of debts canceled. It's the year of debts canceled and slavery ended. And so Jesus is saying, I am here through the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim to you guys the ultimate Jubilee of Yahweh. All debts are to be canceled. All slaves are to be set free. That's what I've come to do. That really informs this good news to the poor, doesn't it? Debts are against Yahweh and are forgiven through those who put their hope in his Messiah. Slavery is slavery to sin that's ended through the Messiah's gift of the Holy Spirit who sets us free from our sin. That's the good news that our Messiah proclaims. Not the jubilee year of property rights and indentured servitude. It's, it's spiritual jubilee that the jubilee to end all jubilees. Forgiveness of sins and freedom from slavery to sin. That's what the Messiah does when you believe on him. And that's what he does in you when you re-believe on him. And when that's not happening in your life, when sin is enslaving you, when you feel condemnation and accusation, something is wrong. That's what you should know about your walk with Jesus. When you are being re-enslaved to sin, when you're being reconquered by condemnation and hopelessness, that is not him working in you. Something is broken. There's a disconnect in your relationship with him. And I, and I think, I, I need to be careful because there's all kinds of qualifications I could make about biochemistry and, and, and de depression and things that are real things we go through. But, but the restoration of his heart for you and his power in you, it comes from coming back to this. He is the Messiah. He is who he says he is in my life and I'm giving myself to you afresh to do and be by your grace what I'm called to be under your lordship as my Messiah and my savior, my, my debt forgiver, my slave freer. So here, Isaiah 61, folks, he, he didn't just come to proclaim good news. He came to, to make that good news effectual in you. See what I'm saying? He didn't just come to say, here's good news. He came to do the good news inside you, to set you free from slavery to sin and from being consumed by your condemnation, what you can't do and what you can't be. That's who he is. 
And that, that experience each day is supposed to happen anew as we come to him again each day and say, Lord, I need you. You are the Messiah. I can't walk on this water by myself, but you can, you can make it solid ground under my feet. Help me walk with you and take that step by step. So that, that's really my, 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 my main appeal to you this morning and myself again is, look, we'll, we'll mess this up, we'll fail this, but, but may 2020 be a day where if you do nothing else, you just say, I'm going to try each day to begin my day coming to him. If it's 10 minutes, I, I, I'm not gonna give you a minute. I mean, I can, I can give you some ideas. That's what the 10 things is about and that thing, but but just to come to him each day and not, not fake this thing. The part that Jesus left out at the end of verse two, the day of vengeance of our God. Let's come back to that phrase, the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus left this out because he didn't come to do this day of vengeance. He didn't come to do it yet. This is what John didn't understand at first. Are you to come? Are you the one coming? Because where's the vengeance on Herod? Where's the vengeance on, on all sin? And Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm, this is part one. And of course, if you know the Old Testament prophecies we've been looking at for, for the last three weeks, that makes perfect sense, right? The same prophet speaks of the son given to us, the king who rules over us, the one whose dominion is everlasting and goes across the whole earth, whose throne never ends. That same prophet, a few chapters later, will say he's gonna be beaten and crushed and killed, right? The same prophet Daniel who says, the son of man coming on the clouds of glory, everyone worships him. He comes into the presence of Yahweh. He says, in 483 years, the Messiah is going to become, he's going to come, he's going to be cut off. Right? So, there aren't two Messiahs, but there is a second advent. We celebrate first advent now, but we look for second advent. Jesus left this out because he didn't come to fulfill that day in his first coming. He came not to judge the world, he said, but so that the world might be saved through him. But in his second coming, he tells Caiaphas, he doesn't come in humility like he came the first time. I don't mean his heart isn't humble. but his glory isn't hidden anymore. In his second coming, he tells Caiaphas, I don't, I'm not coming to atone. I hate to think that what he was saying to Caiaphas is, Caiaphas, you're only gonna see me one way. You're only gonna see my glory. You're not gonna experience my humility. I, I hope Caius came to Christ, but looking back, I'm intimidated afresh by Jesus looking him in the eye and saying, here's how you'll know me, Caiaphas. He comes again, not to die for the sins of his people, but to rescue them and to judge everyone who's rejected him. 
He comes to execute justice on all those who've rejected God. He comes to bring the day of vengeance of God. And we must recognize that. That was mostly what Israel saw when they saw the Messiah coming. They were looking for this great judge, this great king, this great establisher of vindication and freedom for Israel who would judge all their oppressors. But God said, I can't do that because if I come to establish justice that way when I come, Israel, you're all gonna be done. You're all gonna be judged. And, and so we have to recognize that, that we're living in this place in the middle of verse two right now of Isaiah 61. We're living in the day of Jubilee, but there is a day coming when the day of Jubilee will have finished for all who will receive him. That will be completed and the day of vengeance of our God will begin. Is it, I ask this sometimes, I ask you guys again, I ask myself, is it hard to believe that that day is really coming? I mean, it's been so long since he came. It seems like such a science fiction to our hearts so easily. That, that just as the lightning flashes from the east is to the west, so will it be in the day of the Son of Man. That God will really do shockingly miraculous things that we'll be able to see with our eyes. I think the Lord understands it's a challenge for us to believe that. He gave us lots of reasons to believe his coming would take a long time in, in the New Testament. That helps some. But what also helps me, as we've said before, <laughs> is this lamp shining in a dark place that Peter talks about. The prophetic word confirmed. Everything about his first coming has come to pass just as he said it was. And... and <laughs> And each of us has to get up every day. And we have to look Jesus in the eye with our heart and say, this is who I think you are. And when you do that, I think for you, just like it is for me, I think it's hard to look him in the eye and say, I'm so grateful you came, but you're not really coming back. I think as the Lord lives in you, he gives you the strength and the fear of the Lord to be able to know and say, you came the first time just as you said. You are coming again. I don't know how. I don't know the day or the hour. But if he lives in you, then the fear of him lives in you. The right godly fear of the Lord lives in you. And you know that he is coming back. Or if you're going to him first. So I just invite you guys to take some time between now and New Year's day or, or whenever you want to try to pull the trigger on, on a New Year's resolution. And if you don't have that idea in your head, I invite you to have it. I think New Year's resolutions, as, as much as they're historically legendary, often mediocre failures for us, I think they're good things to try. I think goals are underrated. Um, and, and the Donald Whitney article is there for you guys to take and spend some time reflecting. And of all the ones I could recommend to you, it's that very first one he says. He says, What's one thing you can do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? And, and I just want to invite you to consider that enjoyment of God has to involve each day coming to Jesus Christ just as he's commanded us each day to take up our cross and say to him, you are who you say. Please help me follow you in a meaningful way.
I need to do that. You need to do that. I, let's, just, let's not waste this Messiah that's been revealed to us. Do you realize what a privilege it is to know that this is the Messiah? Do you know how few people in this city right now, at this moment, care? And I'm not trying to be like, oh, they're so bad, we're so great. That's not what I mean. I just mean, folks, you are so loved. You are so privileged and honored to know this Messiah. I am so privileged and loved, and so many people need to know him through you and through me. But that won't happen if we're faking it with him the way it should. So, that's all for today. Let me pray for us and, and ask the Lord to bless the rest of our day. Lord, we ask you to help us recognize that we're, we're all living not only in a time of grace, but we're living on borrowed time. That, that we're living in the time between the year of Jubilee, which is now, and, and the day of vengeance of our God. This is a time that will not last forever. It's a season we cannot control. It's a a time that will end when we don't expect it to. But Lord, it is a privilege to live in it. To live in this time where we can acknowledge you are the Messiah. Where by your grace we can follow you each day. That's what you came to do to set us free. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. For everyone in this room who knows your name. Would you, Lord, encourage our hearts to pursue you as you are to be pursued. To not fake our relationship with you to not be half in and lukewarm, but give us the grace, Lord, to seek to live for you each day, depending on you each day. Lord, we cannot do it through our own moral effort or character. We can't pull our own bootstraps up. We plead, Lord, as your sons and daughters, give us the grace, Lord, again, to be zealous for you. Would you take some time in this moment and just talk to the Lord about this? Talk to him about what you want your relationship this coming year to be like, what you need from him through his grace and mercy to make that reality.